Hi, this is William Chamberlain of the Popular Materials Department, and today we have an exclusive interview with movie producer John Davison. Among Mr. Davison's many credits are Piranha, Grand Theft Auto, White Dog, Robocop, Starship Troopers, and Airplane. Airplane will be showing at the downtown library at 615 Church Street in the main auditorium on Saturday, December 19th at 2 p.m. Now, on to the interview. In doing research, I read that you studied at New York um, University's Film Institute, and Martin Scorsese, the man who directed Taxi Driver and Raging Bull, was an instructor of yours. What class did he teach? He taught film, basically. Marty Scorsese was a film instructor for uh, new uh, students, and wasn't, he wasn't much older than the students. And they gave you a 16-millimeter camera, and you would go out and make little movies, and you would run them for Marty, and Marty would critique them. And he was a great, and still is, a great enthusiast of uh, film. We would, you know, go to 42nd Street all the time and see the uh, European exploitation pictures that were playing there. And he was, uh, he was a really good guy. Uh, how was he as a teacher? Well, I mean, can you really teach film? I mean, all, all you can do is encourage people, really, and encourage them to look at film and encourage them to, to make film if that's what they want to do and, you know, try to give them some constructive criticism. But it's not something you can really teach, I don't think. Can I dare ask what your grade was? Oh, I have no recollection. I, I only... Uh, only graduated from NYU out of the grace of a couple of professors because before I got, got all the credits, I went off uh, to work for Roger Corman. I hadn't finished all my classes, but they, I think they considered the fact that I went to L.A. and got a job was worth whatever extra credits I needed to graduate. You just mentioned Roger Corman, and of course you got your start at Roger Corman's low-budget movie studio, New World Pictures, and it says you... You were the director of advertising and publicity and also the head of production. Could you discuss what your responsibilities were in these two jobs? Well, first off, since you mentioned Roger Corman, I wonder if you know that Roger Corman is going to get a special Academy Award this month, uh, November 14th, uh, to be exact. They're having a big uh, honorary dinner for Roger, the Academy is, and along with uh, Lauren Bacall and Gordon Willis and, and John Kelly are, are all getting honorary Oscars. And I think it's really great that they're honoring Roger because he gave so many people their start in the motion picture business. I mean, from Martin Scorsese to, uh, to Francis Coppola to Peter Bogdanovich to uh, De Niro and Nicholson and Jonathan Kaplan and Joe Dante and Jim Cameron and, uh, and me, <laughs> among many other people. One of the less illustrious, but, uh, but I certainly appreciated it. Working uh, for Roger, you just sort of did everything. You know, you could, do as, as you could take as much responsibility as you wanted. I mean, I was in charge of the advertising publicity, and I was pretty much the whole department. I mean, I, I hired a couple of friends to make the trailers and TV spots, Joe Dante and Alan Arkish, and um, they, they would cut the trailers, and I would write the copy and do the newspaper ads and, and put 
all the material in the envelopes and uh, drive them to the post office to send them to the sub-distributors. And um, it's just whatever you wanted to do. You could, you know, he would let you do it until you failed. And after a while, I wanted to move from the advertising publicity into production. And he said, sure, go ahead. And I became in charge of production, which was basically, you know, hiring the crews and making sure the pictures got made as cheaply as possible and that they hopefully uh, were uh, not so bad for the people that went to the drive-ins and saw them. I just, you know, I had a great time. That's all I can uh, remember, you know, about it. It was just a lot of fun. My next question is, do you have any memorable stories from a movie you were supposed to make called The Deadly Dolls of Cell 69? The the script, The Deadly Dolls of Cell 69, which was Roger's title, we got, was actually co-written by Joe Dante, myself, and Michael Wakeley. And I believe that we were offered the sum of $500 to write this picture, which we had to split three ways. We were all in Philadelphia at the time, and we wrote the picture, and I used my part of the money (laughs) to buy a plane ticket from Philadelphia to Los Angeles to deliver the script. When I arrived and delivered the script, they were actually looking for somebody to take over the advertising for the company, and I got the job. So it uh, was money well spent to buy that ticket. The other, and I was actually supposed to go, for some reason they wanted to send me to the Philippines. It was written for India, but I guess India became expensive, so they decided to make it in the Philippines. So they wanted to send me to the Philippines, and I didn't have a passport. So I went down to the city hall to get a passport, and I was arrested because I had some, uh, had an outstanding traffic ticket. So the picture never got made, and Roger bailed me out of jail. So, uh... (laughs) That's all I can remember about it. You know, you were talking about people Roger Corman hired, and another person he gave his first directorial debut to was Ron Howard um, in a movie called Grand Theft Auto. That's right. I forgot about Ron, and I produced uh, produced the first picture he directed, Uh uh, Grand Theft Auto. Uh, Just can you tell how this came about? Well, Roger had made a picture called Eat My Dust, which starred Ron Howard, and uh, I believe was written and directed by Chuck Griffith. And the picture did very well. It was New World's biggest movie up to that point. And the ad line was, Ron Howard pops the clutch and tells the world to eat my dust. And it was a huge drive-in hit. So Roger obviously wanted to make a sequel. And what Ron said to him was, well... I'll be in a sequel if I can direct it, because Ronnie and, uh, wanted to be a director. So that was fine with Roger, because that was, you know, it gets two people for the price of one, you know, the director and the star. And so the movie came about as Ron's father, Rance Howard, wrote it, and Joe Dante uh, edited it. And uh, it was funny that he was the editor because he, he doesn't drive and he knows nothing about cars. And in order to save money, we printed all the dailies at New World in black and white. So Joe couldn't really tell one car from another. <laughs> so uh, eventually, uh, you know, we needed, we needed to straighten a few, a few shots out, you know, because the, the cars switched. But I don't know where I'm going with the story. 
<laughs> it's fine. I'm loving it. I don't know. I don't know what else to tell you. I mean, I guess the food that I served the crew was so terrible, which, which was probably fast food or something, you know, that the second unit, Alan Arkish was directing it, took all the lunches and put them in a big pile and put a slow-motion camera on them and drove a car through them. And... <laughs> And showed up in dailies. And after that, Ron Howard's wife actually catered the movie. Cheryl did all the uh, catering and uh, served the lunches to everybody. So it was a very uh, sort of, um, you know, family family type affair. Yeah, I was listening to the audio commentary on Starship Troopers 2, and you and the director, Phil Tippett, worked together on Piranha, which was made in 1978. I was... Did you build strong bonds with the people you work with in the New World days? Yeah, you know, I think that just in general, that people, you know, people that you work with when you're young, you tend to you tend to bond with more. I mean, you know, you actually had the energy to work 15, 16-hour days and then go out to the bar and spend another couple hours yakking and, you know, and show up the next day. So, yeah, I mean... I've worked with Phil Tippett for years, and he's a great guy, and I've had, you know, the same relationship with people like Joe Dante and Alan Arkish and those guys, uh, Miller Drake. I just, they're still my good friends, you know. You produced White Dog, directed by Sam Fuller, Mm -hmm. and in his autobiography, A Third Face, he said you were a dream producer, a guy who sincerely loved films and devoted enough resources to a project to get it right. And I was just wondering, tell us about the first time you met Sam Fuller when you offered him White Dog. Well, you know, I didn't want to make White Dog. I thought it was a terrible idea for a movie, and I thought it would be nothing, cause nothing but trouble. And But I was under contract to Paramount at the time. I had just done Airplane and Top Secret for them. Actually, it was before Top Secret. I had just done Airplane for them. And, you know, they... they they forced me to do this picture. I mean, they really, Jeffrey Katzenberg blackmailed me into doing it. He's that kind of guy. And they already had a director. They had a guy by the name of Bill Butler who was directing it, who was a director for Disney, uh, who had directed uh, some of their lesser uh, comedies. And I thought that if I could, the only chance I had of making this picture and not being completely run out of town on a rail was if I could get Sam Fuller to direct it. So Paramount said, oh, okay, fine. And so I went out to Sam's house, and I think he was out of town. I think he was in South America or something, or was I don't know. That's not much of a story. I can't remember anything about it. Oh, I I thought he would... he, um, in his biography, talked about how animated he got when you offered him the project. Oh, well, you know, Sam was always uh, knew. Uh, Sam was a friend of Roman Gary's because I think Roman Gary had complained to Sam about the prologue on China Gate, and so they had they had known each other for years and had been friends over the years. So Sammy knew about the project, and and also Sammy and Curtis Hansen were friends. So Sammy was aware uh, aware of the project, and he was actually supposed to do another movie. He was supposed to do uh, Let's Get Harry or something like that for uh, Dan Blatt, 
in Japan. But when he heard about White Dog, he was obviously much more intrigued about doing this. And also, it was something that was just happening immediately. I mean, there was supposed to be a director strike. So they needed they needed to uh, start shooting the movie in six weeks. And the script, you know, was sort of, you know, sort of there, but needed a rewrite. And Sammy, of course, would want to rewrite it and want to, you know, put his stamp on it. So, and really, in the space of, uh, you know, like six weeks or so, the guy actually wrote with Curtis Hansen a draft of the script, there were several drafts of the script, and did the pre-production and got the picture ready to shoot. And, you know, Sammy was nothing if not enthusiastic. I mean, this guy was just a human dynamo. (laughs) You know, he must have been like 70 years old and had much more energy than anybody else on the picture. And he would just uh, get incredibly excited about about uh, the picture and uh, and just never slow down. I mean, he would run up, he would grab a camera and like run up to the top of a hill in, you know, 90 degree, 100 degree weather just to get, you know, to, to get an overhead shot quick. He would He would pick up stuff and run around with it. After Paramount put White Dog on the shelf, Sam Fuller wrote he was deeply hurt and went to Paris for 13 years of self-imposed exile. And I was curious, how did it affect the way you produced movies? Well, I never, uh, I never allowed myself to uh, be a contract producer after that. It was just uh, because I wouldn't have done the picture to begin with. So I, I never put myself in a position where I had to do a movie that somebody else wanted to do. So I became completely independent and never uh, never signed uh, more than uh, one picture deal at a time. I'm curious, what were your responsibilities on the reconstruction of restoration of Lawrence of Arabia? Well, you know, I did very little, but uh, <laughs> and was pretty certainly the best movie uh, I'll ever have my name on. And all I really did is I got a call from Bob Harris, and he was trying to. He said, "Oh, I'm trying to restore this movie, Lawrence of Arabia." And Marty Scorsese tells me you have a print of it, the uncut version. I said, well, I have a print of it, but I don't know if it's uncut. And it turns out it was not the uncut version. It was just a print of the 35-millimeter imbibition print of the movie. But once having made contact with Bob Harris, he said, well, you know, we're also trying to find Ann Coates, the editor. Uh, the original picture. And I said, well, you know, Anna's in the room next door to me. She's uh, cutting a movie uh, uh, next door, and I can get her on the phone. Hold on. So I I got got her on the phone, and then I introduced them to the sound people and some other things. I was just kind of a friend of the reconstruction. I really did almost nothing, but but got a fantastic credit. <laughs> Why was Paul Verhoeven chosen as the director of RoboCop? His first films were like The Fourth Man, Soldier of Orange, Turkish Delight, and they were in Danish and not science fiction. What was the why he got chosen? Well, you know, nobody else wanted nobody wanted to direct that picture. I mean, that picture got turned down by every director in Hollywood, basically. And I was a, always a big fan of. Paul Verhoeven, since I saw Turkish Delight at the uh, Filmex Festival in Los Angeles and saw all his subsequent movies. He had just done a picture for Orion called Flesh and Blood. So I knew how to get in touch with him. So I went to Barbara Boyle and said, who was working at Orion as an executive at the time, and I said, you know, 
we should offer this to Paul Verhoeven because he is a great director. And even though Flesh and Blood uh, will probably never, you know, never make a dime, uh, you know, if you're a great director, you're a great director. Let's send it to him. And she said, fine, I'll send it to him. He also turned it down, but his wife talked him into it. Because I think what had happened is he had probably alienated so many people in his homeland that he pretty much had to leave, I think. I don't think anybody was going to give him more money to make pictures over there. So he is, his wife talked him into taking it, and, you know, he did a great job with it. Just He's just such a major talent. And he still, you know, he still nobody still hires him. Nobody will give him money. I mean, his last picture, The Black Book, is really good. It's a really excellent World War II picture. And you would think that he would get, you know, a dozen offers as soon as people saw that picture. And, you know, he's, he's sitting in L.A. Yeah, that, I saw the Black Book myself, and I totally agree with you. That's a shame. Yeah, yeah. I, uh, I was listening to the audio commentary to Starship Troopers, and Paul Verhoeven was very blunt in saying this is a fascist action film, and the theme is war makes fascists of us all. And I'm curious, how did you get the studio to put up money for the, for the Starship Troopers? Well, you know, the studio didn't, <laughs> didn't really know about the theme. What we did is we went out and we made a little, oh, maybe 90-second sequence of a couple of soldiers getting killed by a giant bug. Phil Tippett did the special effects, and we did a great job with the sound. Steve Flick did the sound, and I had, would carry a print of that film in my pocket because you know, it was only 90 seconds of film. And any time I saw anybody walking across the lot who had vaguely any power at all there, I would grab them and run them into a screening room and run this test for them. And I did this for like months. Sony was kind of interested in it, uh, but what really put it together is I went over and ran it for Disney and for Joe Roth. And Joe Roth said, "Boy, you know this is really this is really cool. Well, we'll put up half the money." And when that happened, then Sony said, "Okay." And uh, I, you know, I assume they read the script, but I, I'm sure they gave it really no thought beyond the fact that oh, it was giant bugs killing people, you know. So that's that's how you could get a bit of a message in there. You produced a movie called Searchers 2.0, and it's written and directed by Alex Cox. Could you talk about it, and when is it coming out? Well, it'll probably never come out. I mean, it's. Uh, it was, you know, just like I did a movie with Phil Tippett, sort of the end of my career, and I say end of my career because I've retired. I've want, I wanted to work with Alex Cox for a long time, just like I wanted to uh, do a picture with Phil Tippett directing for a long time. And I had tried to get Alex to direct RoboCop 2, and he wouldn't do it. And uh, probably wisely the way it turned out. And although it obviously would have been a completely different movie if he had written and directed it. And for years I tried to get, we had various projects that I tried to get going with Alex. And finally Alex, you know, sent me the script for Searchers 2.0. And, you know, I read it and I thought, well, this is fun. I like it. And it's, we could make this picture for, you know, between one and $200,000. 
So I went to Roger Corman, who said yes and gave me the money. And then there was a certain appeal to sort of ending my career with Roger Corman since it started with Roger Corman. It was sort of came full circle. So that was appealing. We went out about 10 or 12 of us in a couple of vans and went out to Monument Valley and made Searchers 2.0. And I think actually it turned out fairly well. It, it played at the Venice Film Festival. And the only place you can get it, if you are interested, it's out. Uh, you can get it at Amazon.com in Japan. And it is the DVD is available from them. And uh, it was issued uh, in Japan on DVD, obviously. And since the pictures, you know, and it's the picture is in English and. They didn't dub it, so it's got removable subtitles, so you can actually buy the picture online. But I have the feeling that is going to be pretty much the entire distribution of that picture. For one thing, Roger's, Roger's company is you know, pretty much out of business. I mean, he does show up in the office, but he's an old guy, and, <laughs> and there are very few employees over there, and and you know, and a lot of uh, a lot of assets, and I don't think he's ever going to do anything with it. Finally, you produced Piranha, and they're remaking it for a second time, but this time in 3D. Do you have any thoughts or feelings? <laughs> well, you know, it's kind of pathetic that that uh, you can't find anything better to do with your time than remake Piranha. <laughs> I mean, it's kind of a, I mean, it was just a Jaws ripoff to begin with, and here uh, it's a cottage industry of remaking this picture. Uh, and it's it's kind of tragic. But, you know, I think movies themselves, if, if quality of them has declined quite a bit <laughs> in, the, in recent years. Uh, and you just have to think you know what? You know why? Why aren't there? You know a lot of good movies anymore, and there are probably a lot of reasons for that. But it's, it's I think pretty evident that the quality of pictures has, has declined substantially re, uh, over the last decade. Do you think it's more of a corporate influence? Because yeah, I think it. I think it is. I think it's just you know it's uh, these big multinationals have bought the movie companies and. What they're interested in is, you know, just making uh, making pictures for kids that are sure things, which would mean to them sequels, you know, and they're just it's just sequels and remakes, and it's being run by you know accountants and in business business types, you know, movies are worse than ever. What can I say? Okay. I mean, they're going to do ten. They're going to nominate ten pictures this year for best picture of the year. I mean, I don't know, think there'll be ten pictures that you can actually were worth the time it takes to watch them this year, let alone get nominated for best picture. Yeah, and also on top of that, you're talking about Corman's honorary Oscar. I mean, movie fans can't watch that. The, the, you know, the Corman tribute. I was really looking when I heard that. I was really looking forward to the Corman tribute reel at the Academy Awards. And yeah, all. me too. And they took it away, and, you know, I mean, it's great he's getting one, and it's well-deserved, but I was really looking forward to that tribute reel. Yeah, yeah, it would have been, it could have been a lot of fun, you know. But, uh, you know, maybe, I don't know, if they have a tribute reel at the dinner, maybe somebody can sneak it out and get it online. That would be fun. Yeah, that would be great. Yep.
Yep. Be on YouTube. <laughs> yep, exactly. If I can steal a copy, I'll do it. I would like to thank Mr. Davison for granting us an interview. Once more, Airplane will be showing at the main auditorium on Saturday, December 19th at 2 p.m. at the Nashville Public Library on 615 Church Street. Hope to see you there, and don't call me Shirley.